are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. So we have Dr. Elizabeth Howell today, who's going to discuss diagnosis and recognizing cannabis use disorders and treatment options, as well as policy surrounding cannabis use in the United States. Before we get started, we just want to go over some terms that we use throughout this episode, cannabis use disorder, cannabis intoxication, and cannabis withdrawal. From the DSM-5 criteria, we have cannabis use disorder. Criterion A reports a problematic pattern of cannabis use leading to a clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of the following that occur within a 12-month period. Number one, cannabis is often taken in larger amounts over a longer period than was intended. Number two, there's a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control cannabis use. Number three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain cannabis, use cannabis, or recover from its effects. Number four, craving or strong desire or urge to use cannabis. Number five, recurrent cannabis use resulting in failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Number six, continued cannabis use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of cannabis. Seven, important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of cannabis use. 8. Recurrent cannabis use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Number 9. Cannabis use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by cannabis. 10. Tolerance is defined by the following. A need for markedly increased amounts of cannabis to achieve intoxication or desired effect or be markedly diminished effect with a continued use of the same amount of cannabis. 11. Withdrawal is manifested by either of the following. A. The characteristic withdrawal syndrome for cannabis, referring to A or B of the criterion. Cannabis withdrawal, which we will go over in just a second. And B. Cannabis or closely related substance is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. And then this is broken up into mild, moderate, or severe. So mild meeting at least two of the criteria. Moderate is presence of four to five of the symptoms. And severe is six or more of symptoms. And cannabis intoxication refers to recent use of cannabis with clinically significant problematic behavior or psychological changes i.e. impaired motor coordination, euphoria, anxiety, sensation of slowed time, impaired judgment, social withdrawal that developed during or shortly after cannabis use. And then the third criteria is at least two of the following signs or symptoms developing within two hours of cannabis use. One, conjunctival injection. Two, increased appetite. Three, dry mouth. Four, tachycardia. And then criterion D or the fourth criteria is the signs or symptoms are not attributable to another medical condition and are not better explained by another mental disorder, including intoxication with another substance. So in summary, intoxication is characterized by euphoria or high giddiness, anxiety, dilated pupils, paranoid delusions, hallucinations, perception of slowed time, impaired judgment, social withdrawal, increased appetite, dry mouth, and conjunctival injection or red eyes, 
for some individuals, severe anxiety or dysphoria can occur. Intoxication can occur within minutes if cannabis is smoked, but may take several hours if the cannabis is ingested orally. Cannabis withdrawal. Most symptoms have their onset within the first 24 to 72 hours of stopping cannabis use, peak within the first week, and it last approximately one to two weeks. Insomnia can last more than 30 days for some individuals. Criteria for cannabis withdrawal is cessation of cannabis use that has been heavy and prolonged, i.e. usually daily or almost daily use over a period of at least a few months. And the criteria B is at least three of the following signs and symptoms develop within approximately one week after criterion A. One, irritability, anger, or aggression. Two, nervousness or anxiety. Three, sleep difficulty. This can be insomnia or disturbing dreams. Four, decreased appetite or weight loss. Five, restlessness. Six, depressed mood. Seven, at least one of the following physical symptoms causing significant discomfort. Abdominal pain, shaking or tremors, sweating, fever, chills, headache. The signs or symptoms in criteria B cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of function, and the signs or symptoms are not attributed to another medical condition and are not better explained by another mental disorder, including intoxication or withdrawal from another substance. And now we are jumping back into our episode with Dr. Elizabeth Howe. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the cannabis use disorder, which is really the same basic thing as cannabis addiction, if you want to use that term. But cannabis use disorder is a real problem. Increased, the risk is increased if you start using earlier. But And I'll define what it is. It's We use the DSM-5 criteria, but the risks are increased if you start using early in life. That's true for any drug that is psychoactive. Uh, the earlier you use, the more likely you are to become addicted to it. The only exception to that might be people who in childhood have true, really honest to goodness, diagnosed ADHD and use stimulants. That's one of the exceptions. But all the other drugs, the earlier you use alcohol, for example, the more likely you are to become addicted. The higher potency preparations going to increase your risk. Frequent use and daily use especially is going to increase your risk. And, and we've even even a bunch of different studies looking at what your risks are. So just the general person, just the general population of people who use cannabis, about 9% of them will become addicted or have cannabis use disorder. And that's about like other drugs. About 10% of people who drink will become, you know, have alcohol use disorder. If you are starting to use cannabis in adolescence, you have a 17% risk of becoming addicted or developing cannabis use disorder. And if you're a daily user, really of any age, you have a 25 to 50% risk. There's a lot of it out there, but people don't think that they have it. And So you're saying one out of two of daily users have a chance of, become, of developing a cannabis use disorder. Yeah, one to two or one to four, depending on which studies you look and at. Age of use definitely has a significant factor. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's not really rocket science. There's the DSM-5 has criteria for use disorders. There's a cannabis use disorder that basically if you meet a certain number of criteria, there are 11 criteria. And if you meet a certain number, you'll have cannabis use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe. There's also a, obviously a cannabis intoxication syndrome that is pretty descriptive of how people feel when they're acutely high. And then there's a cannabis withdrawal syndrome. And I've had a lot of patients argue with me about that. Oh, there's no withdrawal from it. 
but there is. And, and I think that's worth looking at too. If you've been using heavily or prolonged and then you stop and you've got irritability, anger, aggression, nervousness, anxiety, sleep problems, changes in appetite, restlessness, depression, and then other things. You can have GI, you know, abdominal pain, shakiness, sweating, fever, chills, headache. Those are some of the symptoms that you can have with the withdrawal. And it can be, it can be pretty profound. And I think yep. it goes in the wash sometimes. I, I know in an inpatient setting where people come in for medically managed withdrawal, you're typically addressing alcohol withdrawal or right. benzodiazepine withdrawal, opioid withdrawal. And we're all trained to watch, you know, the really significant and serious effects of those withdrawal syndromes. And we wonder why people don't feel better on days three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, when we're giving them adequate treatment for those withdrawal syndromes, not acknowledging that their significant cannabis use prior to admission is playing into their physical and emotional symptoms. And I've seen profound anorexia and weight loss in chronic cannabis users who've had to stop suddenly or who've desired to stop suddenly. Mm -hmm. So much so that, you know, we've had to kind of address I remember doing a whole workup for a particular patient who stopped using heavy, regular cannabis and she lost so much weight. We did this whole like malignancy workup for her Mm -hmm. coming to the agreement that it was probably just stopping cannabis that did it. Unfortunately, she started using synthetic cannabis to offset it. But yeah, I don't think, I think we don't acknowledge cannabis withdrawal enough. And especially Mm -hmm. when we advise people to stop using or cut down and, or maybe use motivational interviewing and they desire to stop that we don't educate people about what it feels like to stop and give them enough support because it's also quite protracted. Right. Withdrawal syndrome. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing because the, Cannabinoids have a very prolonged uh, half-life and they also get recirculated in the enterohepatic circulation. And so you can be positive if you've been a heavy user, you can be positive on your drug screen for four or five weeks sometimes. And often what will happen is is somebody will say, well, no, I, I don't think I'm addicted to cannabis because I I stopped for a month and I was, you know, and then I, I thought I was fine. So I started again. But about that four weeks is when they might be hitting the tail end of their withdrawal. And um, they think of it more like alcohol or opioids, which or benzos or something where the withdrawal is going to hit you within the first few days and it's going to be really, really extreme. The cannabis withdrawal is a lot more indolent and subtle and but yet you just don't feel good. It's it's just a crappy feeling. And and what helps? Well, if I don't feel crappy, I should start smoking again because I knew I didn't feel crappy when I was using. You really need to, if someone really wants to stop and give it a good go, then um, I tell them it needs to be at least three to six months. And if they have psychiatric symptoms, I try to get them to uh, abstain for at least nine months. 12 months sounds too long. This is an old trick from uh, an addiction psychiatrist that I learned from who's, who's now not with us anymore. But he said, 12 months sounds too long. Nine months is, is better. Six months is really not long enough if somebody has psychotic symptoms or, or depression. They really need to go about nine months to get a good idea of whether or not they're going to improve if they stop using. So That's a good guide. It's as long as it takes to grow a baby. It's as long as it takes to get anything done in an academic organization. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's as long as we put people on SSRIs for the first time, pretty much. So it's a pretty right. easy 
number to remember, right? Yeah. Or nine months of abstinence. And I think that's such an important point that you bring up you're going to have withdrawal, but I think that's so important to note that this may not happen for several weeks. So it's like you said, they're used to, especially when we're treating patients, they're thinking that this should happen within a few a few days. And when it doesn't, they think they're fine and they don't recognize when it's occurring. So I think that's really important so that we're giving them that proper education, that support so we can get them to that. It's really hard for patients to understand and families to understand that it, it, the different things that we're talking about, the drug will be out of your body at a certain point. For alcohol, say alcohol would be out of your system pretty quickly. But the effects of the fact that you've been drinking or using for years, that doesn't correct itself overnight. It takes months, a couple of years, basically, for most drugs. And I usually tell people, wait, if you don't feel good, don't get too excited about it or don't get too worried about it. You need to wait at least a year and a half to two years before you decide that you are really having effects that are not related to the drugs that you've been using because it takes that long for the brain to to really change back and and as you both know it's really hard for people to get that length of of abstinence from different drugs it's quite a struggle often they don't get it and then they're using it again and Mm -hmm. we're just kind of off to the races again and, and the brain never really completely gets free enough of the drug long enough of any drug to really repair itself. That's true. And it's unfortunate. I think compounded with the issue is there tends to be an innate desire for instant gratification for a lot of people who mm-hmm. have been using drugs because of damages to their to the frontal right. lobe and the learning and reward centers of the brain. So time, 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 time is the best healer. And to hear a year and a half or two years may be overwhelming to some people, but also I think saying you may, if you don't feel good, just hang in there. You will. I, I love that approach. And I think I need to adopt that more just saying people, well, no wonder why you don't feel good. I see a common trend in providers wanting to fix every ale. Yeah. And we get patients coming in with substance use disorder, complaining of anxiety, insomnia, pain, depression. And of course, we want to evaluate those complaints and Mm -hmm. help people feel better. But there's an awfully easy route to just keep prescribing and keep prescribing typical pharmacological things to help people feel better. But sometimes I think we just need to sit back time and use other things that are, are helpful, like peer support, being outside, exercise, eating healthy diet. Mm-hmm. treatment, therapy, all of those things that give people time, time to heal. It's really amazing if they're in a protected environment and they can take care of those basic needs and they don't feel, they're not living out on the street, very not knowing where their next meal or whatever is going to come from. You know, the safety and the support and everything is amazing that how much that can help people heal. And then we have a better idea of what we really are treating because I most of the time I don't even have to start people on antidepressants. They've already gotten put on them in the middle of their addiction. So I have no idea if they need them or not. They just, I usually don't stop them because I'm afraid I will disrupt something. But but nobody wants to wait. They want everything. They want it now. They needed it yesterday and they've deserved it all their lives. So that's uh, the, the way that you think when you're in active addiction. There is a screening for cannabis use disorders. It's called the QDIT-R, Cannabis Use Disorders Identification Test Revised. You know, it doesn't say you definitely have cannabis use disorder. It says if you score a certain way, you, you have hazardous use. And if you score even higher, you have possible 
CUD, so to see an expert. So sometimes it helps to to show people. And, and I think this is also typical of, of anyone who has addiction. In the middle of your addiction or you're using, you think that everybody has the same symptoms you do, that this is normal, you know, because it's your normal. For example, plenty of times we would see people in the hospital who would say, well, I'm drinking. Meh, it's not really that much. And so, well, what's not very much? Oh, it's about a fifth a day of liquor. And I'm thinking, whoa, that's 17 drinks a day. Did you know that? And they're like, what? <laughs> There's no conception of what's high use and what's what's no, quote unquote normal. The same thing is is true for cannabis, heroin, whatever. True. And, and you know, Beth, you, you taught this a long time ago, I think, when I first met you as a resident, that it doesn't even, I mean, it matters how much people are using, but what's even more important is the effect of what people are using. So it could be an infrequent low dose effect of any substance, but if the consequences are dire, then it's a problem. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of substances. People don't have an idea or it's difficult to have insight into their process because they're like, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't drink every day like my aunt does. And yet right. they are having trouble with interpersonal violence, not going to work, not fulfilling major roles, mm-hmm. having trouble with their health. And the same is true with cannabis. People right. may only use infrequently, but they get widely paranoid and stay up all night and feel horrible. That That's a significant um, negative consequence with the use. I think that's an important concept to yeah. understand as providers and to teach to our folks that we we try and take care of. So the same thing's true for cannabis. So let's talk a little bit about adverse health effects of cannabis. The ones that I I think are worth mentioning are suicide risk, self-harm, psychosis, PTSD, risk of opioid overdose, which comes up a lot, and cardiovascular health. And then interestingly, the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, and also look at motor vehicle accidents and, and ED visits. There is some evidence that Cannabis use is associated with an increased risk of any self-injury at all, suicidal or non-suicidal. Don't really know why that is. And also it can be associated with an increased risk of suicide. And we did talk a little bit earlier about the study in the late 80s about schizophrenia and cannabis risk of increased risk of schizophrenia in people who were entering into the Swedish military. And this this was a large study. It was 50,000 people were studied. And the more you had participants had used cannabis, the more times they had used it, and the more likely they were to, of developing schizophrenia. And it was a dose-dependent fashion. The other thing is that that recent study in uh, Europe, daily cannabis use was associated with increased odds of psychotic disorder, and it increased nearly five times for daily users of high-potency cannabis. So that's another real significant association. And of course, a lot of these, you can't say causality, but, but definitely an increased risk. And there also are cardiac complications of cannabis, not very well appreciated, not understood by a lot of users that that is a risk. And there is an increased risk of myocardial infarction or heart attack, ventricular tachycardia, arrhythmias of other kinds, prolonged QTC interval, stroke, sudden death, asystole 
arteritis, and even arterial dissection. And this is from the cardiology literature, not from the addiction literature. And the cardiology literature basically states that they feel that the increased use of recreational cannabis or other kinds of cannabis will have a serious impact on the worldwide burden of cardiovascular disease. So is this from the smoking or is the cannabis product itself? It is apparently the cannabis product itself. It looks like there's it involves an interaction of the natural or synthetic cannabinoids with the endocannabinoid system through receptor and non-receptor mediated pathways. So it doesn't have to be through smoke. That is so interesting. Yeah. And so what happens is that endocannabinoid system, when it's affected by cannabinoids, it can have, there can be more procoagulation effects, platelet activation, decreased cardiac contractility, hyperadrenergic state, and oxidative stress. And that seems to lead to the other downstream problems. So that's quite interesting to me. That was something that I, I have to say I didn't really appreciate very much until the last few years, the effect on the on cardiac function. Agreed. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you see it immediately with tachycardia and hypertension in intoxicated patients. So you just wonder if it's, you know, if it's downstream long-term effects of that, you know, effect on the on the whole cardiovascular system. Yeah, it's the other thing that's real interesting is the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Paula and I have definitely seen a handful of these patients in the hospital. Oh, I have seen this. I had this one, it was so difficult to convince them that it was their cannabis. And they mm-hmm. kept just using it and they were so sick. And this yep. is so difficult. I don't know what your guys' experience was, but it was so difficult to convince them that this was a side effect of, well, of their use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they think, well, it can't be the cannabis because it's supposed to help with nausea. What happens, there's a prodrome where you start having early morning nausea, anorexia, fear of vomiting and real severe abdominal discomfort that gets worse. Then there's a hyperemetic phase where you have frequent emesis and nausea, diffuse abdominal pain, and then the recovery phase is when it resolves. And really the only thing we know that that really treats it in the long run is to stop using the cannabis. And, and so some of the features are cyclic vomiting or cyclic vomiting for hours to days, excessive thirst. People will compulsively bathe and shower with hot water, which relieves some of the symptoms. They'll have severe gastric pain. And, and there actually have been some deaths from this due to, to complications of chronic vomiting. And there have been some case reports of that. And it's it's a quite interesting physiology, and it has to do with the effects of the cortex and the limbic system and the chemoreceptor uh, trigger zone and the vestibular system and the GI tract and all these interactions. And, and so it's kind of a, a really complicated sort of gut-brain interaction. And what happens is that the cannabinoids inactivate the TRPV1 receptor, which is uh, affected by capsaicin, you know, and heat. That's why people end up in the shower all the time. And so cutaneous heat or capsaicin will normalize the gastric motility that is has changed because of the inactivation of this receptor. So capsaicin and heat will activate the receptor that's been inactivated by the cannabis. And the treatment for this disorder is the cure, really, is to stop cannabis permanently. Once this develops, you're 
probably never going to be able to use it again. In the short term, you get fluids, electrolytes. Haloperidol can be helpful for nausea and vomiting. You can get some sedation if you need it with benzodiazepines and then the capsaicin cream on the abdominal area. And that's really how you treat it. It's a really fascinating disorder. It can be very disabling. And, and like I said, it can be potentially fatal if you get enough nausea and vomiting. And also let's talk about a little bit about this whole relationship between cannabis and opioid overdose. There was a paper that came out in 2014 that basically said medical cannabis laws are associated with significantly lower state-level opioid overdose mortality rates. Paper in 2017 that said cannabis alleviates neuropathic pain, but insufficient evidence for chronic pain, as we talked about earlier. And they noted adverse mental health effects. So a lot of people said, well, you know, people need to use cannabis for their chronic pain. But in the epidemiologic studies in larger samples, um, the users of cannabis do not lower their opioid doses um, compared to people who, who don't use cannabis. They continue to use both. They use same amounts of opioids and are higher, and then they, they use cannabis. People who use cannabis at baseline are more likely to have an opioid use disorder three years later, according to the NISARC data analysis. In more recent studies, there were increased opioid overdose death rates, uh, increased by 52% in states that legalized cannabis. And so what really happened was that there was a dip in the overdose death rates in the states that legalized cannabis initially. And the initial study in 2014 was published during that dip. But then after the dip, there was an increase. So now what we're seeing is an increase in overdose death rates. And, and that's really an interesting point is the timing of that also aligns with the CDC guidelines coming out with the new mm-hmm. opiate prescribing. And there was a lot of this de-prescribing at that time. And yes. this stricter regulation, because again, it, we, we have to be very careful, right, about causality. And so, yeah, it's very interesting exactly. about that earlier paper. And then now, yeah. like you said, you're seeing these larger studies that are showing, I mean, Paula, you'd probably agree, we see these patients frequently that come in in our practices and they're going to these pain clinics and they're getting a cannabis card right along with these quite high morphine milliequivalent doses of pain medications co-using and no decrease once they start that cannabis, exactly what you said. And, and yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes so much sense. Yeah. I think there's a genuine... Yeah interest in avoiding and you know opioid prescribing right and i don't think this is all malicious i think there are people who really want to have cannabis be an alternative to opioid for opioids for chronic pain and and it's it's disappointing to have conversations where we just don't really have good evidence but you know i in speaking to legislators and things like people like this they they want this to be the answer they want this to be one of the solutions Right. Well, instead of opioids, which kill people, isn't this so much better? Isn't this so much more benign? And I guess herein lies the controversy is, is it really? And it circles back to the beginning of this talk, you know, regarding perception of harm and perception of risk. And then we're only now beginning to gather the data surrounding opioid co-prescribing, decrease of opioid use disorder, decrease of um, opioid deaths, both 
and then non-fatal opioid overdoses as well. That's interesting, and it's very controversial. At the end of the abstract on this paper in 2019, we find it unlikely that medical cannabis used by about 2.5% of the U.S. population has exerted large conflicting effects on opioid overdose mortality. A more plausible interpretation is that this association is spurious. Moreover, if such relationships exist, they cannot be rigorously discerned with aggregate data. And then they point out that research into the therapeutic potential of cannabis should continue, but the claim that enacting medical cannabis laws will reduce opioid overdose death should be met with skepticism. to say the least. More will be revealed in time as this goes on. The other thing is that after cannabis use, we talked a little bit earlier about some of the effects on the brain, slower reaction time, motor concentration problems, and poor judgment. There in the late, uh, like in 2018, there were a few papers on uh, jurisdictions with state licensed medical marijuana dispensaries, and the odds of marijuana-involved driving increased by 14% in these areas. Another one pointed out significant positive associations between cannabis use and road traffic crashes. And the other thing that was seen in uh, just in, in general in emergency departments is from 20, 2006 to 2014, there was an increase of, I think the number went from sort of the like 50 to 60,000 cannabis associated ED visits all the way up to about 250,000. And there was a, an also an increase in the rate per 100,000 ED discharges, nationwide emergency department samples, uh, the NEDS, the nationwide emergency department sample. So it wasn't just, you know, one state or another. It was, it was overall, we haven't really talked about this much anymore, but you know, for a while, we, a big thing was the E-Valley, the uh, e-cigarette or vaping product use-associated lung injury, which sort of fell off our radar as soon as COVID hit. And there was a, a small epidemic of, of this lung injury, mostly related to THC-containing products, probably not related to the THC, but related to the contaminants. So just something to consider and just to remember that vaping products, the juice that people use, the e-juice, is not well-controlled either. We have no idea a lot of times what, what's going into that. That's true. So the behavioral treatments are a one uh, large component. There's evidence that you know cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing and contingency management group therapy can work. Back in the early 2000s, there was a, a large federal funded study, a cannabis use treatment study. And and they basically showed that a lot of different psychotherapies worked, including motivational enhancement, CBT, community reinforcement approaches, and multidimensional family therapy. Once again, these therapies are are not instant cures. They take a while that you have to have skilled staff and they're fairly, if you're not in a research study, they're going to be fairly expensive and that sort of thing. So we also look at what can be used pharmacologically. Many, many things have been tried <laughs> in different categories. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytic medications, mood stabilizers, cognitive enhancers, other cannabinoids, anticonvulsants, uh, glutamatergic modulators, hormones, fatty acid amide hydrolase inhibitors, and cholinesterase inhibitors. And those have all been 
looked at. And it's kind of frustrating, much like the stimulant story where we've tried many different things and not much has really helped. And the Cochrane Review that was published in 2019 said that there's incomplete evidence for all of the pharmacotherapies and that the studies, the quality of evidence is pretty low. Um, but there are many things that are of little value. SSRIs, SNRIs, bupropion, buspirone, and atomoxetine. They're probably of little value. THC preparations could be considered experimental with some positive effects, mainly on withdrawal symptoms and craving. And then the evidence base for the anticonvulsant gabapentin for oxytocin and N-acetylcysteine is weak, but these medications are also worth further investigation. So we have no FDA-approved medications for cannabis use disorder. Basically, probably worth a try. N-acetylcysteine, mucomist, 1,200 milligrams twice a day. You can buy it over the counter. It reduces uh, use and positive urine drug screens compared to placebo in some studies. Gabapentin, 1,800 milligrams daily, decreased use and decreased positive urine drug screens and withdrawal symptoms in one study. Of course, you know, gabapentin has its own problems. It can be abused Mm -hmm. and people get addicted to it, that sort of thing. So we really don't have any magic sort of pharmaceutical cures. There was a paper that was published in 2019 by uh, Robin Williams and Kevin Hill in uh, Focus, and they have an algorithm, and that's worth looking at because they talked about anti-craving medications, and they talked about NAC or N-acetylcysteine, naltrexone, bupropion, and CB1 modulators, and then adjunctive medications included hydroxyzine, gabapentin, buspirone, mirtazapine, and quetiapine, but they talk about behavioral therapies as being very important. There's also harm reduction approaches, and there are lower-risk cannabis use guidelines from Canada, and it's mostly, it's kind of apple pie and motherhood. The most effective way to avoid risk is to abstain, but if people are not going to do that, then delay use until after adolescence. Products with lower THC and higher CBD concentration, and then avoid synthetic cannabinoids, avoid smoking, because really smoking anything is not a very safe way to use it. If you're going to smoke, don't inhale deeply or hold your breath and avoid frequent or intensive use. And so their recommendation is limit consumption to occasional use, such as only one day a week or on weekends or less. And as you know, that's much less than most of our patients are using. Don't drive or operate machinery. Don't mix it with alcohol or other drugs. People with a personal or family history of substance abuse or psychosis and pregnant women should avoid cannabis use and avoid combining any of these risk factors above. So I think that's worth looking at because if you have someone in your life who is using and they're uh, not willing to try to, to stop, then there are ways to mitigate risk to a certain extent. And I think that's it. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Howe. Awesome. Everything we need to yeah. know about cannabis and I cannabis don't know use that. disorders. Everything we need to know. That's right. That was so comprehensive. Thank you so much. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
the podcast are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.